right. Man, that's some good singing. Thank you, brother. Thank you, musicians. Tonight, we have a guest with us. We're always honored to have a missionary come our way. Our brother tonight is on his way to Ireland. And so we're going to ask him to come, give his testimony, introduce his wife to us and brother, and uh, show us what your burden is tonight. So, brother Stuart Gregg, come on, brother, if you would, missionary to Ireland. Amen. Honor and a privilege to be here tonight. Uh, uh, I do have this on. I'm seeing red light. Is that okay? Okay. Uh, I ask you to open your Bibles uh, to John chapter 20 tonight. Let me say that we are just blessed with the accommodations that you've given us. I'm thankful for you making your uh, prophet's chamber available to us the last couple nights. A great help to us and uh, we're indeed grateful for that. I hope we can be as much of a blessing to you tonight as all of you have been to us already. Uh, John chapter t- uh, 20, verse 21. The Bible says, Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Uh, very early on, uh, Cindy and I adopted this verse as the foundational verse, if you will, for uh our ministry. Uh, we're here tonight to present to you our burden for the people of Ireland. And I'm careful to say that I didn't use, to use the word burden, not work, because at this point we don't have a work. Not yet. That's what we're going to establish. Right now we have a burden. And uh, it's a heavy one at that. Uh, I guess it all started for me, just to give you a little bit of my background. The night of October... 21st, 1973, when as a young eight-year-old boy, uh, I was sitting in a revival service at my home church, First Baptist Church of West Grove, just outside of Birmingham, Alabama. And I remember the evangelist very well, big tall fellow named Brother P.J. Scott out of Columbia, Tennessee. And I remember well what he preached on. He preached on hell that night. And I mean, he preached it so hot, I felt like there was flames under the soles of my feet. And when the invitation was given that night, I felt the need to go to the altar. And I asked my dad to let me out and go to the altar. He said, son, what do you need to go to the altar for? I said, daddy, I need to be saved. He said, why do you feel that way? He said, because I'm going to hell. He stepped out of my way and let me go. And me and 11 other kids are sitting on that pew that night at the very front of the aisle. Our pastor, Brother Lonnie Talley, six foot four, 240 pounds of St. Clair County, Alabama lumberjack kneeled down and took me by the hand. When he shook your hand, your hand disappeared. Just big, just a big mountain of a man. And, uh, amen. Every church needs one, brother. Amen. But he said, Stuart, what brings you to the altar tonight? I said, Brother Tally, I need to be saved. He said, well, why do you feel that way? I told him what I told my dad, because I'm going to hell. <laughs> he said, well, staying out of hell is as good a reason as any to get saved. Amen. He said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to tell God exactly what you told your daddy and what you told me and ask him in your own words to save you. And he started working his way down that pew to the other kids there. And I don't remember if it was a case of could not or would not. All I know is when Brother Vitaly came back to me a few minutes later and asked me, Stuart, did you ask God to save you? I lied to him and told him Yes. I did. 
And that began 26 years of living a false profession. I can remember going home with doubts in my mind that night and having doubts all week. Of course, it was fun the next week to get baptized with all the other kids and get that Bible with your name on it and have everybody hug on you and love on you and all that good stuff. And Going on through elementary school, it's easy to live a lie when you're with other church kids that you live with in the neighborhood. Some you go to church with, others go to different churches, but you all have some moral values and character about you. How well I remember my first high school football practice. I had never seen anything like that. Birmingham in those days was known as the Pittsburgh of the South, Steel Town. I mean, you finished school, you were going to the steel mills, uh, the pipe mills, the coal mines, or the military. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what Birmingham was known for producing. And these kids were big, strong, mean, foul-mouthed, and ungodly. Well, it didn't take long for that to begin to wear on me because by the end of football season, I was just as mean and foul-mouthed and ungodly as they were. Living one life at school and another at home and at church. You young people, you listen to me tonight. I guarantee you I'm not the only one that's ever done this. You may be one of them. I managed to resist the temptation to drugs, never gave in to that, but how well I remember at a minor league baseball game the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school, I gave in to the temptation to alcohol. You know, I'd always heard that, no, that's an acquired taste. You know, you've got to develop a taste for that stuff wrong. That's not true for everybody. I loved beer from the first sip. And I never missed a chance to get my hands on some. Of course, it didn't stop with beer. It went to wine and eventually to uh, liquor and pure grain alcohol and Long story short, the last day before Christmas break, my junior year, uh, I was caught drunk at school. Had to have my high school football coach walk me to the office and call my dad to come and get me. Game over. (laughs) That's a tough thing to explain to a Christian family. And I can remember dad trying to talk with me and being as gentle as he could without, you know, compromising being dad. And I resisted and resisted, and I just finally made the decision, look, I didn't need that stuff when I started it, and I don't need it now. I'll just walk away from it, right? I'll just, uh, I'll just turn over a new leaf. I didn't need a new leaf. I needed a new birth. But unfortunately, that didn't happen at that point. That lasted all of about four months, and I'm right back at it again. And all through my senior year, the same guy who's leading Fellowship of Christian Athletes Prayer on Friday morning game days is out pounding Budweiser with the boys after the game on Friday night. And that continued on through my Army years. Most of those years are a blur to me, my off-duty time, due to my consumption of alcohol. I never reached dependency, and it's only by the grace of God I didn't. But young people, let me tell you, if you're, you're toying with that stuff, you're playing with fire. Best thing you can do is walk away from it and leave it alone. What's in that bottle is poison. And I remember getting out of the Army. My first weekend home, I am absolutely hammered. And I'm out at our local convenience store buying more beer. And who do I run into but my high school youth director, Brother Philip Willis. He knew I was lit, but he didn't rebuke me. He walked over, shook my hand, and hugged me and said, Stuart, 
I'm going to another church now. I said, Brother Talley by the time then had passed away. And he said, I'm going to another church now. I'd like for you to come and visit with us. Of course, I told him I would. And it took me a year to accept that invitation. But when I did, I got introduced to another mountain of a man, Brother Jim Trotter, who at the age of 88 today still looks like he could walk into a college locker room and take charge, brother, college football locker room. And uh, maybe that's the kind of preacher I needed. I don't know. But he had a similar style of preaching, Brother Talley. I mean, just raised the roof. And, you know, I, I, it felt good to be back under preaching. And for the next seven years, I attended church every time the doors were open. I went to visitation. I planned, organized, and conducted vacation Bible school, even trained workers. I taught Sunday school all as a lost Man, you know, some drunkards are real good at hiding their liquor habit. I was good at hiding my sin habit. By then, I had quit drinking, but I was still unsaved. And all that changed the night of October 17, 1999. We had been experiencing a revival in our church, and Brother Trotter got up to preach. And as soon as he stepped behind the pulpit, I felt something I hadn't felt since I was eight years old. Those flames of conviction under my feet again. And to my shame, I sat there and listened to him preach that message. And I let ten other people walk the aisle that night and get saved ahead of me. Now, I don't know how God dealt with you when you got saved, but this is how he dealt with me. He spoke to me as sure as I'm standing here tonight. That still small voice and said, boy, it's now or never. That's a scary thing to have God talk to you like that. All this time, I'm sitting there with a white knuckle grip on that pew in front of me. You say, what'd you do? I let go of that pew and I stepped out in that aisle. It's like I picked up a tailwind out of somewhere. I mean, I'm just breezing down that aisle. I, that night, 7.55 in the evening, that night, standing behind the pulpit, leaning on my pastor's shoulder, crying like a baby, I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save my wretched, miserable soul. And I want to tell you something. It was a no-doubter. I got in, amen? amen? Never once did I doubt my salvation. Never have. And it wasn't long after that that I sensed God might be wanting me to Tell others what he had done for me. Little did I know he would be leading me into the ministry. But about a, six weeks later, Brother Charter walked up to me for the morning service, put that big old hand on my shoulder and said, Son, Lord been dealing with you about preaching? I didn't quite know how to answer that. I said, No, sir. He patted me on the back and says, Go home this afternoon and memorize Ephesians 4.25 and come back and quote it to me tonight. I went home and looked that verse up, and it jumped off the page at me. It said, Wherefore, putting away lying, <laughs> speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. <laughs> Young people, you think God might be leading you to do a work for him. Don't think he hadn't already spoke to your pastor. I promise you, he has. Uh, I surrendered to preach February 29, 2000. It's my 22nd year of gospel ministry. I've served as a pastor, associate pastor, uh, evangelistic work in uh, nursing homes, rescue missions, juvenile justice ministry, 
at no point over that period has God failed to keep me busy. He's always had me doing something. If you make yourself available, God will use you. He'll put you to work. Amen. And I was quite content to continue serving as the de facto, if you will, associate pastor of my home church. I think an associate pastor, as I understand it, has two primary functions. Number one, watch your pastor's back. He's a busy man. If he's counseling families, situations they got going on at home, a lot of people sick, making hospital visits, he's burdened about something, you know, the devil will exploit that opportunity. And, uh, you know, he'll try to stir up some kind of little stink in the church. And it's your job to keep an eye out for that and sound the alarm to him when that happens, among other things. And the other one is to do what you're told to do. Matter of fact, you shouldn't have to be told. If you had to put chairs out in the aisle to accommodate visitors, do it. The grass needs to be cut, do it. Hedges need to be trimmed, do it. Bathrooms need to be cleaned. Trash needs to be taken out, do it. I was content to do that until... January 21st, 2017, God sent a then 23-year veteran missionary to Ireland to our home church, uh, Brother Craig Ledbetter. And he preached the morning service, preached a great message, third Sunday at our church, is Fellowship Sunday, and uh, I got to talk with him quite a bit over supper after that service and uh, just really developed a keen interest in what was going on over there. And when he got ready to leave, he handed me a prayer card. He said, Brother Stewart, he said, I want you to come and see me. And I gave the standard Bible-believing Baptist answer we give when we're confronted with questions that make us uncomfortable or situations that we don't like. I said, brother, I'll pray about it. No, and I had zero intention of uttering the first word of prayer about that. I went home that night, sat my Bible down on my desk, got it ready for morning devotions the next morning, said be prepared when I got up for work, and set that prayer card down to the left of the keyboard of my computer. 4.30, alarm goes up off the next morning, get up, get dressed, go in, sit down, Bible's open, I'm ready to get started, and I see that prayer card sitting there. I took a deep breath, you know, I promised that man I'd pray for him, let me pray for him. I picked that prayer card up, and no sooner than I did, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, go see him. Yes, you, dummy. And what followed was about 15 to 20 minutes of Moses at the burning bush type conversation where I outlined to God 101 reasons why I could not and would not go to Ireland. And you know what the Lord said to me? Stuart, all I ask you to do is go see him. You see, I'm reading something into that that wasn't yet there. (laughs) Getting ahead of God. Anybody ever done that before? (laughs) It'll cost you, won't it? Anyway, it took a year and a half to put the logistics of that trip together. Uh, We were able to go the last week of June... Uh, first week of July uh, 2018, and boy, did we ever get our eyes open. As I was telling Brother Brent uh, here earlier, uh, Ireland's a very much a first world country, European Union member, uh, you know, modern transportation, logistics network. Their stores are not a whit behind ours in terms of products available to the consumer, but still very much third world in some of their ways and the way they think. And sometimes that's hard to overcome. And Brother Ledbetter put us to work right off the bat. That first week, we went soul winning in court, door to door soul winning. Men went one way and the ladies went the other. And we went to four different communities, four different social economic levels, four different education levels. And the higher we got up that education and social and economic ladder, 
the greater the spiritual ignorance. It's a testimony to the damning effect that Greek philosophy has on an education system. That interlinear Irish-English New Testament that you see on our display table, Brother Ledbetter and I tried to hand that to a college professor in his door, hand him the New Testament in his native language, thinking it might be a blessing to him. That man spent 20 minutes browbeating us at his door. Who do you people think you are? Destroying the minds of young people by teaching them this fallacy that there's a creator God with a notion of sin. You're going to destroy their self-esteem. How could they ever achieve their potential carrying that kind of burden, that kind of guilt, and blah, 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 blah. Finally, just shut the door in our face. And I watched that Many year veteran missionary walked away from that man's door with tears in his eyes. And I didn't dare say a word to him. We got about halfway back to his house. I said, Brother Craig, you okay? He said, yeah, brother, I'm okay. But what bothers me is that barring a work of God in that man's heart, not only is he going to die and go to hell, but he's going to take his family and a lot of his students with him. And therein lies the problem in Ireland, folks. As I was telling the young people, Catholicism is the state religion there. Has been since the days of the Normans. For Ireland, that's going on a thousand years. And you can sense the spiritual oppression almost from the moment you get off the plane. Every other word out of the mouth of the Irishman on the streets is profane. Profanity is the calling card of a man with no hope. That book says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Every other word out of your mouth is profane. Don't tell me you've got any hope, much less a blessed hope. Amen. As I was telling these young people earlier, thanks to Catholicism, you can't start a conversation with most Irishmen on the street from John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's like mainland China in a lot of ways. You've got to start from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. You have to convince them there is a God before you can ever show them their sin and their need for redemption. And it is an uphill struggle. And we got to see that a lot, quite a bit on the streets of Cork. But the second week, we really got our eyes opened. It was a youth camp, full week-long youth camp. Uh, Not only do you have native-born Irish children, we also had a lot of immigrant children from... uh, West African nations, Niger, Nigeria, Cameroon. Uh, I never knew there were so many plumbers, pipe fitters, carpenters, and electricians in Africa, but apparently they are because that's what they put on their visa applications to get into the country. Well, a strange thing happened. Six to nine months after entering the country, Dad finds another woman to run off with and leaves Mama at home with a house full of kids. So to honor the terms of the visa, she has got to go find some type of job training that's acceptable to the Irish government. Now, they're a small country. They do have a very limited social safety net. They're willing to help, but what they can do only goes so far. So not only she's got to feed, clothe, and shelter those kids, she's got to find a way to pay for job training so she can stay in the country. And we'll see on the slideshow, uh, that's who Cindy and I had in our group at youth camp that we led for a week, primarily the African kids. And the prayer requests that they voiced would just crush your soul. The girls, 
More than one are on the verge of suicide because daddy left the home and they blame their self. I don't know whether it's cultural or what, but those African girls take that very hard. And the boys, they want to be the man of the house. They sense the need to fill that role, but they don't know how. There's nobody there to show them. Now, they know who Jesus is. The Roman Catholic Church has a presence in West Africa. The problem is they don't know how to get to him. That's where the missionary comes in. Amen. And our mission, and make no mistake about this, our mission is to plant a King James Bible-believing Baptist church somewhere in Ireland at, the, at a place and time of the Lord's choosing. It's not as easy as it used to be. There's a lot of restrictions now that weren't, haven't always been there, but it can still be done. Amen. And that is what we're going to do. That's our mission. That's what God is sending us there for. And we will have Brother Ledbetter's church, the Bible Baptist Church of Ballincollig, which is a suburb of the southern city of Cork, third largest city in Ireland, uh, has agreed to be our sponsoring church. It's something you have to have now to get a religious minister's visa. Uh, once approved, a religious minister's visa is good for three years. Uh, if you keep your nose clean, you can reapply for a three-year extension and at the six-year point, you now either have to naturalize or go home. It's a dual citizenship kind of thing. You won't have to forfeit your American citizenship. You will be a dual Irish and American citizen. And in a lot of ways, that's good because if you find yourself in a dispute with a Catholic priest over there, which is likely to happen at some point, then you both have equal standing in the eyes of Irish law. All right, so you have some rights under the Irish Constitution at that point. So... Uh, I'll tell you, do we have, do we have uh, pictures of starving, half-naked children living in grass huts like you would in the South Pacific or parts of Africa? No. But does that mean that there aren't problems in Ireland that need to be addressed? Not on your life. There are kids dying and going to hell there just like there are in Africa. Amen. The Roman Catholic Church is not just part of the problem. The Roman Catholic Church is the problem. Amen. The abuse scandals that you've seen covered, barely covered in the American news media, they don't even scratch the surface. If you heard about that and you've got questions, I'm happy to answer those to the adults after the service, but it's not something we're going to talk about in the presence of children. It's just hideous. Okay. Yeah, committed in the names of uh, in the name of the Lord. <laughs> Crimes against the Irish people that I can't even speak of tonight. Okay, we've got some pictures I'd like to show you here, if I may. I'm going to have a seat so that I don't block anybody's view. Give me a moment to get started here. Well, I have lost my laser pointer, if that's okay. All right. Uh, just use the arrows, brother. Okay. Thank you, brother. Okay, these are, uh, <clears throat> if you're going to minister in Ireland, it helps to have a knowledge of their natural wonders, their customs, history, culture. Brother Ledbetter gave us a good dose of that while we were there. Uh, one of the first places he took us was out on the western coast of Ireland to the cliffs of Moher, uh, one of their natural wonders. Uh, just to give you some idea of how, that's 700 feet straight down into the Atlantic. 
And that little boat you see right there, that's not some uh, bass boat cruising Lake Sam Rayburn. That's a 100-foot long tour boat out of the Port of Galway, a little ways north of there. And I've given people a look at the cliffs from the sea. In the upper corner there, you can see the uh, Iran Islands. Out in the distance, that's the home of what is left of Ireland's wool industry. Uh, the farmers will shear their sheep. That wool is sent out there. It goes through the fuller's process. It's put on the loom. And they'll make scarves, caps, sweaters, coats, uh, the old world way. And if you follow the care label that they send with you when you buy it, uh, it'll probably last you a lifetime. Uh, sometimes there's a lot to be said for the old world way of doing things. Uh, this is a bay looking to the south. Uh, while we were there... Uh, it was a Alabama hot, quite honestly, the hottest summer on, in Europe in 100 years. It was 98 degrees the day we were there. You can see the grass is turning brown and dying. And just a more uh, view along the cliffs there. Uh, castles are a big part of their culture. This is Bunratty, uh, one of their historical castles that's been re- uh, uh, refurbished at uh, Visitors Can Tour. One time was surrounded on three sides by a moat. On the fourth side, it sits on the bank of the river uh, uh, Shannon. And you can see this one actually had a drawbridge that you pulled up. You can see the indentation of the wall there where the drawbridge used to be. Still a big tourist draw in Ireland today. Uh, this is the town of Balancholic where Brother Ledbetter's church is located. And I, and I include this photo for one reason. Other than driving on the wrong side of the road, a bad habit they picked up from the British, uh, that could be any small town in Texas or Louisiana or Oklahoma, or Alabama for that matter. You see those people on the right there walking those sidewalks? They're real people, just like all of you. They've got real problems caused by real sin, and they need a real solution, and that solution is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The death, burial, resurrection, plus or minus nothing. For the cleansing of sin, it has a 100% success rate. Let's see modern philosophy top that, amen? Uh, American soft drinks are available there. Um, This is Fanta Orange. It's kind of unique. It's carbonated just like it is here, but it's made with real orange juice. Like nothing I've ever seen before. It really is an acquired taste, although it wasn't bad. Uh, This is pizza in Italy and most of Europe. Uh, Light, flaky, melt-in-your-mouth crust. They don't drown it in sauce like they do here. Uh, The real stars are the veggies, the cheeses, and the meats that you choose. Uh, That's a pepperoni pizza. Each one of those slices of pepperoni is about a sixteenth of an inch thick. I was about 100 pounds heavier when we went to Ireland than I am now, and it took me two days to eat that. So uh, you're not going to starve in Ireland. They want you to eat well while you're there. Uh, This is uh, one of the back streets of the city of Cork. Uh, This building, the predominant building on the left side right there, is the Starbucks coffee. Bring that your attention for this reason. Who does Starbucks... Here in America, who do they do the majority of their marketing to? What age bracket? The so-called millennial generation, right? Uh, 25 up to what, 38 roughly, if I, the age bracket, uh, if I remember correctly. Well, they do the same thing in Ireland, and guess who else is targeting that demographic there? Muslims. At 6% of the population and growing, Islam is the fastest growing religion in Ireland. They weren't there this Saturday, and why, I don't know. But on any given Saturday in that open area to the right there, they're out there greeting those young millennials on their way into Starbucks. Those Muslim men will take those young Irish men, look them in the eye, shake hands, and talk to them, something that the Roman Catholic priest won't do. 
Those Muslim women will hug those young Irish ladies. They'll hand out candy to the kids. And you know what they're giving them? Tracks. Muslim tracks. You see, they've been watching us. They know what we use, and now they're using it. (laughs) They're targeting that demographic because they know they don't stand much chance of winning my age group or older. They're going after those millennials, figuring if they win them, then they can win their kids. That's the real target, them and their kids. All right? Scary thought. Public transportation in Ireland, this is your double-decker transit bus. As I was telling some folks earlier, if there is a way to pick your pocket, the Irish government has found it. Parking is one of those ways. Uh, An hour, an hour or less will cost you five euros to park. Uh, for an hour and above, you're talking about uh, 750 up to about 25 euros for all day just to park on a Saturday to do your shopping. So it's uh, parking can be quite expensive. So a lot of people, uh, rather than driving to work, just take public transportation. This uh, is one form of it. Uh, it's been said that one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Uh, that's especially true in Ireland. Uh, this is a, done by a street artist in Cork, a mural commemorating the 1916 uprising, which lasted until 1922, uh, which eventually resulted in Ireland being granted independence from the British crown. Uh, the men in the uniforms are the old Irish Republican Army. And by the way, they haven't gone anywhere. They've just gone into a veiled form. Uh, the men in the suits there on the left led the political side of that thing. Uh, they are still revered as heroes by the Irish people today, but also viewed as traitors by the British. Uh, this is one of the foods that's available in Ireland. I didn't even know it was edible till we went there. And I took this picture. This is kangaroo meat. Uh, if anybody has any interest in eating Skippy, all right, you can have my portion. I don't want it, okay? Uh, this is uh, the old English market in downtown Cork. As you can see, old-fashioned butcher shop. Uh, preservatives, for the most part, are banned in the European Union. So I mean, uh, most Irish ladies are going to go to the store two, maybe three times a week. You either have to buy meat. Or when you buy meat, rather, you either have to cook it, freeze it, or lose it. You know, that, they are just, they're not going to uh, allow preservatives there. So, and they'll wrap it up in butcher paper just like they did when we were kids here and send you home. Uh, fresh fish. Cork is a port city. Uh, pleat comes in between 5 and 6 in the morning. By 10 o'clock, it's distributed to the stores. It doesn't get any fresher than that. Uh, on paper, that is a North Atlantic eel. And to me, it looks like something out of Revelation chapter 9. Uh, you know, I, I snapped that picture and got out of there before it had a chance to bite me. Amen. I will forever be indebted to this man. This is Brother uh, Paul Layton. Uh, I'm not very tall, five foot nine on a good day, depending on whose tape measure you use. As you can see, I'm considerably taller than Brother Paul. But this is who Brother Ledbetter mated me up with to go our first soul winning trip into Cork. And I have to admit, I thought, you know, does this guy really know his Bible? I mean, is he going to be able to show me anything? Boy, was I about to get an education. Uh, the very first door we knocked on, all right, and a Catholic fellow answered the door. Of course, they had this round robin of excuses. They're trained to give people who mother face who witness to them. And, and right out of the gate, we got, well, why are you at my door? Why aren't you out? Uh, why aren't you out to the heathen, going to the heathen in Africa? You know what Brother Paul said? Sir, you are the heathen. <laughs> okay. For long, he says, uh, well, what about the poor? 
Jesus said, the poor you have always with you. You're poor in spirit. I ain't ever seen anybody take this approach to witnessing to a Catholic. I finally just pulled out a notepad and started taking note. Go, Brother Paul. Go. Little did I know, God was using that man to give me a class on how to witness to Roman Catholics in their doorway in Ireland. So I am forever indebted to him for that. You don't have to give place to their wickedness. You take that Bible and you tell them exactly how it is. Uh, this is the city hall in the town of Croom, uh, McCroom, about 25 miles west of Cork. A beautiful old building, but the yellow plaque there at the bottom of the stairs on the right caught my interest. And uh, I went and looked at it. Come to find out, in colonial days, and this is one of the sources of bitterness between the Irish and the British, the Irish are not permitted to have indoor markets at any point during the year. Only the British military and aristocracy could do that because the British felt like they were prime recruiting grounds for rebels, and a lot of times they were. But this plaque celebrated the 300th anniversary of this town being granted indoor market rights by Queen Anne of England. And I thought, wow, what kind of a country is that where you've got to have uh, market rights to hold an indoor market? Uh, if you think we had problems with the British crown, trust me, you have seen nothing. As far as I know, no American families were sold into slavery under British rule. Irish families were. And the potato famines in the mid-1850s, the British didn't feed the Irish, they let them starve. That's why a lot of them found their way here. So they haven't forgotten that. Uh, this is the old British uh, fortress across the street where the British garrison in that town was stationed. Back behind that is a large stone. And on, these, uh, on this stone are the names of some men from that town who participated in an uprising that lasted from 1798 to 1803. In the left column are the men who were executed. The center column are the men who uh, ended up doing life in prison. The right column were those who disappeared and were never heard from again. And every year they shut that town down for a commemoration ceremony. And the whole town turns out. Yeah, old times there are not forgotten, folks. Uh, this is McCroom. It's a lot like uh, Balancholic. The only difference is more traffic because you've got a national highway running through it. Uh, this is Castle Ross, uh, not too far from the cliffs of Moher. Uh, this was once owned by William O'Donohue, who was the last great Celtic warlord. Uh, he organized the Celtic clans into a single army in 1204 to beat back the last great Viking invasion of the country. And he's still held as a hero by the Irish people. And in later years, it came into possession of an Englishman by the name of Ross. And upon his death, he bequeathed the castle and the surrounding grounds to the Irish people for the establishment of a national park. And that's what they've done with it. Uh, this is Lake Killarney adjoining the castle. Uh, I'm not kidding when I tell you you can see 8 to 10 feet down in that water. It's that clear. Uh, the timber on those hills and those islands in that lake is all first generation. Some of it they have no way of telling how old it is. Just pristine beauty. Uh, this is the Muckrose House, also on the grounds of the castle where the Ross family actually lived. Uh, you can still rent that out for weddings and wedding uh, receptions and so forth. A lot of Irish girls have their weddings there. Right? Now, Young people, I'd have a little fun with you here. This is your traditional Irish cottage. Uh, as you can see, the fireplace is in the middle to help with cooking and distribution of heat. Nine-inch thick outer stone wall, six-inch thick inner wooden wall, and other than the uh, entryway at the front, the utility shed to the right, running water and electricity, that's the same cottage it was when it was built. Young people 12 and under, anybody want to guess how old that cottage is? I'll tell you, it's 356 years old, and it's still occupied. 
Old world way still works. Uh, the next few slides here are from the uh, Gap of Dunlow, also not far from the cliffs, just beautiful mountain landscape here, very hilly, rocky, uh, some pasture land there. Uh, you can see the little one-lane road off to the left that runs through the gap between the two mountains. Brother Ledbetter brought us out here to show us this place for a reason. Uh, every March 17th, we have uh, St. Patrick's Day in America, right? Anybody here know who St. Patrick really was? He was not a Roman Catholic priest. He was a hellfire and damnation gospel evangelist. And he walked those very same hills and mountains barefooted, taking the gospel to Irish towns and villages. That man had what is missing in a lot of Christian missions today, a burden. A burden for souls. Everything is not as it appears to be. The Roman Catholic Church would have you believe he was a priest. He wasn't. He won souls by the thousands there. Uh, I was concerned about what I might eat over there. I I tended to be kind of picky in those days. And from a couple blocks away, this restaurant caught my eye. And I I couldn't believe it when I first read it. But when I got close enough to take the pick, I, I couldn't believe it. It's called Hillbilly's Restaurant. I said, that sounds uniquely American. And I, I walked in, and Irish restaurants, behind the counter, you'll have a chalkboard where they put the daily specials and so forth. And on this one it said, best fried chicken this side of the Atlantic. I thought to myself, hallelujah, the gospel bird is served here. I'm going to be just fine. Amen. <laughs> this is your Irish road sign printed in Irish and English. Uh, Irish or Gaelic is still taught through the fifth grade there, although the young people have no interest in it because it's not the language of commerce and business. That, of course, is English, and they want to make money. Uh, Only now are the Irish people beginning to realize that the first step toward losing your sovereignty as a nation is losing your language. They're taking steps to correct that. But the question is, can they do it enough time to get the young people interested in it? I don't think so. Uh, There's a silver lining in that for us as Bible believers They are aware of the King James Bible's connection to the crown, how it all got started. But they also know very well that it's (laughs) anti-Catholic. And for most Irish, that's good enough for them. If you give them a King James Bible, they'll take it. Amen. And they won't question it. These are the kids that we led in youth group that last week there. Young man in the middle right there, the vest on, on his knees, got saved the third night of youth camp. He became my shadow from that point Got saved on Wednesday night and asked me if he could bring the devotion on Thursday morning. <laughs> a group were, Troy, you're not ready for that, buddy. Go home and talk to your pastor, okay? <laughs> but it was a blessing to have him ask. These kids are lost, but they're good kids. We had 128 campers and staff. And in a camp that size, those of you who held U camps, you're familiar with this. Every group's going to have to take turns doing the dishes, cleaning the dining room. Uh, we had it four times that week. I had a boy and a girl stand beside me in the, in the kitchen and wash dishes till the last dish was washed, dried, and put away. Not one word of complaint. The remainder of those kids were out in the dining room with Cindy, sweeping and mopping the floors, wiping down tables, restocking napkin canisters, refilling salt and pepper shakers, all the things that you have to do to provide food service for a group that size. Not one word of complaint. You can't get American kids to cut their, uh, the grass or clean their room without a lot of belly aching. Amen, parents? 
Not one word of complaint out of these kids. That didn't just happen. Somebody instilled a work ethic in those kids. These are good kids. And I'm telling you, if you can win them to Christ, they'll be good workers in the Lord's work. Amen? And that's what we want to do. There is a battle shaping up. This is going to be the battleground in Ireland, I'm convinced, for the next four to five years. I don't have any hard numbers to prove this, but based on what the Irish told us when we were there, the way the European Union is feeding immigrants into Ireland, by the year 2040, Ireland as we know it today won't even be Irish. All right? And when you consider the immigrants that are coming from the Middle East, the more restive areas of the Middle East, Yemen, where there's a civil war going on, the refugee camps of Syria and Jordan. Uh, if we don't win these kids to Christ, the Muslims are going to win them to Allah. And I don't have to tell you what a destabilizing influence Islam is in any Western nation where it's practiced to any great extent. So we want to win the native-born Irish, but we're not going to ignore these kids. They need Jesus too. Amen? So we want to try to win them as well. Brother Roger, that's all I've got.